The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by internationally renowned solo violinist, Simone Porter. Welcome, Simone. Thank you so very much for having me. It's great to have you. We tried to do this over the phone last week. We had some technical difficulties, but I'm glad to say you're actually here today, (laughs) which is much better. So let's jump right in. I want to talk about your career a little bit. You'll be performing as we record this weekend with the Utah Symphony, but you've been doing this a while and you started quite young. Uh, You were 10 years old when you premiered in Seattle, your hometown. I was born in Salt Lake City. Born in Salt Lake City? Yeah. I forgot that little (laughs) tidbit. That's really important. Well, Seattle, kind of where you grew up then. And then you were 13 when you performed with the Royal Philharmonic. And everything I've read about you talks about prodigy and how young you were when you started, how gifted you were as a child, All that stuff. And, you know, you're an adult now. This is no longer something that you probably think about much. But though it was quite a thrill as a kid to be talked about as a prodigy, you probably maybe wish as a young adult that people would start talking about something else. Talk a little bit about that. What's that been like for you? Uh, To be honest, I've always got a bad vibe from the word prodigy. I was never really a huge fan Uh of that title. Sure. I didn't like it uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, it just called to mind something very performative and mm. showy. And I think it ignored some very vital aspects of this, which is the necessary hard work and the emphasis on uh, community support, basically. Sure. Um, so Prodigy just calls to mind the image of somebody who just enters the world and bam, smack, they're there. Yeah. They can do it and sure. uh, be impressive. Yeah. Um, Um, Whereas really, it's a process that takes so many people and so many uh, elements of work from, um, you know, the physical, technical abilities to intellectual, emotional, to just the vast, vast amounts of support that I've been so blessed to receive from mentors and family, colleagues. So I've been very, very happy to see that word dwindling as I got older. I guess the biggest thing that I have noticed and that I very much like about growing and being watched in Mm -hmm. in this particular arena Mm -hmm. is the shifting of the gaze from just that sort of hype to um, what do you actually have to offer, what do you have to say, um, which is what I'm very, very interested in. So I'm very, very glad that other people are looking at it too. Well, I'm glad you said the word performative too, because there's something about that word that does seem to be about the act of being on stage and not the act of being an artist. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about repertoire a little bit with you, symphonic Mm -hmm. repertoire, concerto repertoire. Tell us what goes into planning a season for you. I mean, do you make sort of a list before each season Mm -hmm. and decide what you're going to offer or does it depend on what orchestras are asking for? Mm -hmm. Do you think this is going to change as your career develops? Walk us through that. Um, Absolutely. It's still both. Um, I'm still working a lot on cultivating my repertoire, which involves um, learning, you know, the mains, the sort of meat and potatoes, Mm -hmm. uh, the concertos everyone needs to know, and my own personal wish list. So in planning a season, it's really a combination of what I want to do, what I think is best for me professionally and just as a constant student, and what is demanded of me by programming of certain orchestras. So um, it's really the the entire thing is sort of a conversation uh, with myself, my managers, mm-hmm. uh, or, or orchestra personnel. Mm-hmm. For example, the the pieces that I'm playing this week with Utah, right. I've never done these with orchestra before. Right. So this is um, something new that I learned for this concert, which is right. always exciting because yeah. a lot of times it's repeating the same um, concerto with orchestras and it's in a totally different context. So you always hear it differently, but there is nothing like trying something out with an orchestra for the first time and sure. fully hearing that sound world. Probably a little nerve wracking, I imagine. But a little it's, bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, there's some of that, but mostly but excitement. <laughs> you'll have a piece in your repertoire that not many of your colleagues do, that's for sure. You mentioned big concertos. You mentioned meat and potatoes before, and I'm wondering, at this point in your career, are there any of the big ones you haven't gotten to do yet, or are there any that are kind of on your list as a must-conquer soon? Uh, yeah, so this year um, I'm actually doing Sibelius for the first time, really? which I'm very excited to do that. I think Great. Sibelius is... Uh, so 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 close to my heart I actually think it's very mature music too it is extremely I think it requires a lot of thought and a lot of just experience to really get into what that type the type of loneliness that it's conveying you you got it that's the word that is the Um, word yep so I'm doing that. I think Great. top of my wish list for life is Beethoven, which mm-hmm. I still have not done. Yeah. But I think well, that's also one that requires a lot of maturity and yeah. thought and just, you know, able to age over the years. Kind of Mount Everest in lots of different ways. Yes. You know, active performers like you often have composer relationships. And I'm curious if there are contemporary composers that really interest you and if anyone's writing stuff for you right now. What, what's the plan for commissions? Um, I have no active commissions. That is mm-hmm. absolutely something I want to do in the future, but sure. it is not there right now. Yeah. Um, I have premiered a couple of works by the composer and my dear friend Alexander Pryor, mm-hmm. who's a conductor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, playing works by living composers is something I want to do more and more and more. Yeah. Um, so, but all I really have planned right now, I'm playing a work by Esapekka Salonen on my recital next year uh, on some recitals. So, yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully something that is very much a future endeavor. And you'd like to commission concertos too, not just chamber music, Absolutely, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Anything you've heard recently that interests you that you think, you know, yeah, yeah, LA is such a great place because they, uh, the film, emphasizes new music so much. So yeah. even in Violin Couture's, I got to see John Adams, who I absolutely love, and Lula Jusetsovitz playing this Shesherazad 2, which yes. was definitely a highlight of absolutely. everything I've ever seen at Disney Hall in LA. Yeah. So being that close to that much bubbling new music absolutely. is really a privilege. Well, you can probably just keep an eye on young composers that they're working with and maybe try to forge a relationship and maybe. get somebody to write you a piece. Well, any composers listening, Simone is ready for commission. <laughs> yeah. She is ready to be commissioned, so give her managers a call. I've been mentioning orchestral repertoire, and you mentioned a, a chamber piece by Esa Pekasalan in a moment ago, and I know that you're an active chamber musician. And this is every performing artist that I talk to, this is an important thing for them, not just playing with orchestras or as a soloist, but also playing a lot of chamber music. So what does this kind of performing do for you as a soloist? Mm-hmm. And how do the disciplines translate one to the other? I think every single type of playing bleeds into every other one. So in chamber music, you need to know how to be a soloist and solo. You need to know how to be a chamber music, a good orchestral player. Really, you need it all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Playing chamber music, I think, is almost at the heart of every single musician's love because um, it's the spirit of collaboration and conversation is what it's really all about. And I think in some ways that for me is almost augmented when I'm on stage playing a solo, but it Mm -hmm. also has to be a little condensed. It has to be efficient. Um, With chamber music, there's a little more flexibility to explore, to discuss the type of expansion that it engenders Mm -hmm. is very, very different. There's just more time to talk, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the growth that comes from chamber music is absolutely essential to just my happiness as a musician and a person. Does it make you, I mean, basically that you're talking about these conversations and playing a solo is it's kind of the same thing. It's a conversation between you and the conductor Mm -hmm. and you and the orchestra and then those three elements just sort of making this art happen. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the chamber music, the time you spend in chamber music makes you a little lighter on your feet when you're with an orchestra that you can react more quickly and respond more? I think so, absolutely. I mean, being a soloist is a balance between you know leading and showing right, but i right. think ultimately 
on stage after rehearsals, after we've worked out our joint visions, whatever, I just try to play with people. That's right. I think the best way to uh, release tension and nerves, which I get asked about a lot, is think about the other people mm -hmm. on stage. Mm -hmm. um, if you're trying to play with other people and listen to them, then it's not all about you. So right. it's, it's, it's fun. It's interesting instead sure. of just pressure, pressure, pressure. Sure, sure. And in, and in a way, you probably help anybody else that's on stage deal with their nerves too. When you, Hopefully. Kind of, when you have that kind of generous relationship, that's great. People that I've asked this question of, I've often said there really isn't in the end much difference between playing with an orchestra and playing with, with a chamber There shouldn't setting. be, yeah. Right. So and I'm, I'm, it sounds like you feel the same way. I wanted to ask you about something that you experienced back in 2008. This was back when you were younger, but you got to play for the Dalai Lama yes. in Seattle back then, which is to me... I mean, a top shelf lifetime experience. I mean, mm -hmm. the kind of thing that any one of us would love to be able to have in their <laughs> sort of catalog of experiences. So even though you were younger then, tell us what you remember about the experience. Did you actually get to meet and speak to him? Just what was that? Like? Very, uh, very briefly. It was yeah. part of a symposium on compassion in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And it was hosted in our our giant football field, Quest Field. It was quite the day and quite the event. Was it full? I'm sure um, it was full. Yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah. And and um, I got to open the ceremony playing uh, the second movement of Mozart's third violin uh -huh. concerto. Mm -hmm. I remember it was completely overwhelming. I mean, sensory overload. Right. But um, I got to meet him very, very briefly backstage. And even from that, there was just a very, very apparent, generous and serene energy yeah. Um, yeah. that I think I was able to take into the performance and not be nearly as nervous because, mm -hmm. again, it was about way, way, way more than me. So it was absolutely an experience that I treasure. It was over imagine. too fast, um, sure. but it's sure. a memory that will forever be very, very I, special to me. I, I'm so jealous. I wonder how many people you probably played for that day. Do you know? Do you know what I the I think there are, are about 50,000 there, I believe. It'll probably be a while before you get 50,000 people <laughs> yeah, in one place again. I know. That's <laughs> really, really something. Well, before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about something I read on your website, which I found was interesting. You had a, you had a book list on there. And <laughs> I'm a crazy avid reader. Mm -hmm. I, I read a lot. But I have to admit that your Desert Island book, Unbearable Lightness of Being, Milan Kundera, I've actually never read it. Mm. So I'm just curious, one reader to another, why do you love it so much? What is it? Um, so uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being is a philosophical exploration in the formation of a novel. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a book that I read and I've reread since, but mm -hmm. it really, really changed the way I approached all of other reading mm -hmm. after. Uh, it made me think and sort of uh, just permeated every aspect of my life in mm -hmm. a way that no book had done before. Uh, the way that Kundera writes about relationships and love and just interactions between people. Uh, everything he writes is just so perspicacious and mm. so truthful yeah. um, that it really, really pulled, just went right to my heartstrings. Yeah. Um, it's something that I reference constantly and that I recommend to all of my friends. Okay. Um, and music plays a very, very big part in I it. I was going to ask yes. if there was any link there, yeah. Yes, there is. Yeah. Kundera writes about music a lot in his novels, so there's much, much of that uh -huh. uh, reference and that plays a pivotal role in this tale. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think, a book that makes everybody reconsider and rethink. And the stories that he tells in that novel are 
keep on being resuscitated by new experiences in my life. Uh, something happens to me and I look back to that book and am able to see it with a deeper understanding. So it really has a long, long life. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic review. I have to read it now. I, I wonder when you read, are you are you mining those experiences for things you can use as, a, as an artist? Um, Maybe not consciously, but do you feel it sort of seep into your performing life? Oh, yeah. I've always been a huge fan of synesthetic connections in general, uh -huh. but the connections between literature and music have yeah. always been my favorite. Right. Um, when I was much younger, uh, this really, really started because I was a huge Harry Potter freak. Okay. Still am. But uh, I think you have lots of good company. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but when I was much younger and working on repertoire with very little emotional experience to draw on, yeah. I started looking to Harry Potter books. Um, there was a piece I was playing, Blocks Nagoon, which is about really, really deep mm -hmm. loss. Mm -hmm. And um, I looked to Harry Potter, the fifth book, when he loses his uh, godfather, sure. to understand what would be happening in the head, what the, what the process of mourning was mm -hmm. really like. And I continue to do that, although my sources have, uh, you know, expanded. It's not just Harry Potter anymore, but... Sure. Um, Absolutely. There are so many times that I read books and I've, I'm like, wow, this this passage sounds like this piece of music and vice versa. Right. Sometimes I think about it and try to draw the connection. Sometimes it's just immediate. Yeah. I just see the two as uh, working in tandem and being the soundtrack to each other. <laughs> I, I, I love that idea. And I've often tried to look for ways for the two things to connect. And um, there's kind of deep questions in music that are hard to answer because of the art form itself being a little a little a little misty a little mm -hmm. little indirect that i find in literature you know mm -hmm. stuff about emotions and and consequences mm -hmm. that i do like the idea of one thing informing the other so i appreciate your answer no there. it's it's great yeah. i love it. i mean the sort of amb the inherent ambiguity in music yeah. makes it all the more universal cuz it's just right. applicable to anybody but i find that going in for a really specific personal narrative doesn't make it any narrower it makes Not it all. deeper it expands so, it yeah, yeah. it expands mm -hmm. it in a deepening way absolutely mm -hmm. i agree well you and i sounds like we could talk for days <laughs> about this stuff this has been great <laughs> but i do want to ask you our sort of stock question that we close all of our mm -hmm. interviews with and you've probably seen this but because of the name of our podcast we always like to know if you simone porter have ever seen a ghost do you have any paranormal stories that you can share with our audience I'm afraid I do not. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the only ghosts I experience are just, you know, memoirs of past in art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's it. Composer ghosts and writer ghosts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Not only in my dreams. Like, yeah. do, do justice to my piece. What are you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a visitation. That's <laughs> okay, why not? I'll take that one. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that if you ever see a real one, you'll call us back and let us know. Absolutely. This has I'll been stay in touch. Fabulous conversation. Really looking forward to the concerts this weekend and look forward to having you back to Utah at some point. Your home city. Yes, exactly. Simone Porter, thank you very much for joining us on the Ghost Life Podcast. Thank you so much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.